In episode 117 of the Cinematologist podcast, we talk to top Bucharest film critic Andre Gorzo about Romanian cinema, particularly the new wave, realism, and its relationship to the fall of Ceausescu and its aftermath. We also review the BFI Blu-ray release of Romeo is Bleeding, a 1990s erotic thriller starring Gary Oldman and Lena O'Lynn. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and I'm joined, as always, delightfully, by Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, Neil. Good to be back with you. Seems like they're coming thick and fast at the moment, don't they? Yep. I uh, I feel like I'm right in the, the swirl, and it's great watching lots of movies for lots of different episodes, um, which is how I like it. Yeah. You know, I like, I like one day watching some Andrew Dominic, one day watching some Romanian films, one, you know, like just, it, it just feels good to be... Yeah, watching movies and talking about it. So, hopefully, hopefully our listeners will agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've had that that comment before that we are kind of random, but we kind of embrace the randomness of what we what we choose to do. And uh, yeah, I mean, with, with me as well, it's I'm, I'm doing a lot of um, the new oral cultures interviews at the same time. So, and I've got like four in the bank already of those. Um, so it's just a lot lot of stuff. I'm just you know really busy and and really nice to get our podcasting funding bid to the to the point of going i think we're literally i'm you know how long have we been working on this like a, two, two two years maybe all told two years yeah it must be about two years yeah yeah two summers ago we sat down we had a well it must be over two years because i think two summers ago we sat down at your flat and um yeah and sort of worked through some bits on it so it must be yeah which obviously we couldn't do last summer um, for obvious reasons but yeah so it must be at least two years yeah it's one of those processes i think that i think it, you know sort of doing it again i would i'd have much more of an idea of the the scope of what you need to get ready before you even mm. you know start really it's having people on board thinking about the dimensions of what you're trying to do how it syncs up to the to the requirements of the bid itself and it yeah it's just been a really long process and up and down and covid and all that kind of stuff but i mean everybody's going through the, the same thing it's funny this week, I've just seen um, some other funding pots come up and some jobs have come up here and there. So maybe there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel in kind of humanities and arts and media in terms of, of things happening again. But everybody, you know, it's like I was saying last week, last week in my monologue on New York cultures, it's just, it's hard work and everybody seems kind of done. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, so I spent the weekend building garden furniture and it was sunny and that felt like a really nice slice of the real you know yeah, yeah, uh, yeah which we'll probably talk a bit about today but yeah sort of five or six hours of building seats was it just felt like a complete remove from the day-to-day sure. slog which was lovely yeah so today as we've sort of alluded to is going to be very different to our last ones and this is one that you've put together so do you want to let us know what what's in store today yeah i mean this came up really because my partner who is romanian she is good friends with romania's number one film critic really i mean i know that sounds like hyperbole but seriously if you do a little bit of research this guy uh andre gozo from bucharest he really is sort of at, at the top of the pile of names that you would go to for sort of understanding romanian cinema and 
I think one of the interesting things, and we get into it in the in the interview, is the crossover between his journalistic writing and his academic teaching and writing. So yeah, he's um, I don't want to say he's old school, but he's very much a classically trained film scholar in the sense of if you think of film studies from the 70s which was trying to i think put itself on a par with with literary studies in many ways and i think he was he's very much trained in that kind of tradition and you know expansive knowledge and a really really interesting conversation about romanian cinema in the context of kind of international cinema realism which i think we'll talk about a lot and you know the idea of what is a national cinema and how does it reflect the the cultural and and political identity of a of a nation um yeah it's a really fantastic interview i think listeners are really going to enjoy it and you can tell the school that he probably sits most closely alongside from his influences and the sort of the formative people that that he sort of he references but it's also a kind of a really accessible chat you know as as intellectually far reaching and sort of you know expansive as it is it's also really accessible, which I think is a testament to what you're saying there about how he has the same parts of his sort of film psyche that we do, you know, the scholar, the academic, and then just the, the sort of the cinephile and the fan. So, yeah, it's a really great conversation. And, yeah, lots to lots to talk about once uh, once we come back. Great. Yeah, so before we get to that, though, just a quick mention, we have a few new, well, not new Patreons, but um, upgrades, really. So, uh, Brian Hutton, thanks so much for upgrading to £11.50 level, which gets him uh, a T-shirt, and that's winging its way, I think, already. And and uh, Brady Clark has also upgraded to the £5 level, which he'll get a tote bag for that, along with all the, the other access. And, yeah, I mean, again, if you enjoy the show, um, we really appreciate it when people join up for membership and you get access to our newsletter which is pretty extensive in terms of recommendations and then there's a little article that goes goes along with it and then there's various levels up where you can get merch but also the the offer of other aspects of engagement with with the show including right up to um, editing an episode so those of you who are able to um, support us we really really appreciate it it is a big help when it comes to the the running costs of the show um, and the, the more that we do, the more the running costs go up. And it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not a complaint or anything like that. But you know, we do want to keep doing more, and the Patreon really does um, allow us to do that. But before we get to the interview, Neil, you you did have a you did have a film that you wanted to review quickly this week. Yep. Uh, speaking of merch, this is a film edited by Walter Merch, although not one of probably the ones that he's most most known for. The BFI are releasing a lovely Blu-ray of Peter Medak's 1993 pulp neo-noir Romeo is Bleeding, starring Gary Oldman and Lena Olin. And yeah, this was a film that I remember seeing in that kind of early 90s neo-noir boom, you know, sort of Tarantino adjacent, but things like Red Rock West and The Last Seduction and things like that. And it was... It always struck me as a as a lesser film in that in that sort of weird little canon. Um, and watching it again, I really really enjoyed it. But it, it certainly doesn't quite doesn't quite hit those heights. But it is a really interesting film. It's a it's got a great performance by Lena Olin as this sort of Russian mafia sort of matriarch um, who's kind of the scourge of the police, the FBI. 
and the mafia, like the Italian mafia, led by Roy Scheider. It's a, it's got a real, yeah, it's got a real kind of nice murky tone to it. She's just fantastic. Gary Oldman plays this kind of fallen cop who's fed up of just you know taking the the low paycheck and wants to sort of change his circumstance. So he kind of takes on all sides. And um, yeah, it's got Annabella Ciora and Juliette Lewis. Will Patton, Ron Perlman, you know, one of those great early 90s casts where sort of everyone is, everyone is a face. And um, yeah, it, it's a kind of rollicking good time, really. It's an interesting movie from the perspective. It's, it, it's you know, a British director and a British lead in a, in a very, very American film. It's probably dated a bit due to its, the voiceover by Gary Oldman, who's much better in scene than he is over the top. But um, yeah, interesting and, and very good fun. And yeah, just worth seeing for Lena Rowland's performance alone, which is which is fantastic. She's really good in a lot of stuff. I, I kind of not forgotten, but do you know what I mean? Sort of somebody who's never given props alongside other actors, maybe of a similar stature. And uh, I think I've seen this back in the day. And I'm right in saying it. It didn't. It's not. It wasn't particularly successful. No. In terms of box office, and yeah, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's one of those that just maybe just kind of didn't land. In terms of, I mean, what are we looking at? Nineteen ninety-three. Maybe it was a. Li- I mean, did you feel it was a little bit dated? Maybe it was a sort of eighties film that was loitering in the nineties. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, maybe maybe a sort of sort of mid to late eighties movie. It's it's a bit out of time with what's going on there. It's not quite the seventies pulp. Yeah, you know, it's not quite. Yeah, what later? You know, sort of the heights of neo noir. It's not a LA Confidential, which is a few years later. It's got not. You know, it's it's. It feels like a B movie in, in many ways, you know, sort of high level B movie. Um, and I remember seeing it on VHS. I sort of mentioned this in a in a future episode. You know, it was definitely it was definitely a VHS movie for me. Um, saw it on the shelf, and in that period of kind of getting into actors like Gary Oldman, and it was I might have even seen it sort of after True Romance, kind of, in, which would have been a couple of years later, um, or maybe the same year. But yeah, sort of, you know, in the, it's it's of a piece with a lot of that. And in the day when you would just you would everything that looked quite similar, you would rent. It, it sort of it, it did well in that sense, but on its own, I don't think it's. I just looked up the date and I've realised it's it came out a year after Basic Instinct, so maybe it just looked really dated by comparison to Basic Instinct. Which, I mean, I haven't seen this yeah. in a long time, so I can't remember. But you know that that did sort of change things. I think when it comes came to that sort of erotic thriller, psychological drama type stuff. Yeah, and there there is a there is a strong erotic thriller vibe you know yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. it um which and it's that, that's very rooted in that early 90s erotic thriller mm. um you know scuzzy gary oldman is kind of falls for the <laughs> yeah. the voluptuous and dramatic lena olin yeah. um and sort of is she is his downfall um although not really um but 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 certainly she sort of takes over the film so it's hard to it's hard to see where where his downfall is elsewhere so yeah a, f- a fun movie and just another interesting addition to the BFI's release, you know, mm. kind of bringing back a, a sort of a filmmaker who doesn't really get talked about very much. So well worth checking out. Um, good fun. Great. So, yeah, let's get into the main subject of the podcast then. So, I mean, just we'll, we'll get into it pretty quickly, Neil, into the interview, because I think, you know, it's a long interview and then, you know, a little bit of discussion afterwards from 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 you. But is Romanian cinema a blind spot for you? Have you seen many, many films kind of across the years? I've not seen many in the last couple of years, you know. So the the, the, the recent ones you sort of talk about 
graduation and collective and the new poor and boy the whistlers i haven't seen mm. but certainly the certainly the big hitters you know and that's because of a kind of a relationship to festival cinema which is sort of mentioned in the thing which i think is really interesting so yep. i had seen all of the big the big poos and the big Manjus, you know so um yeah that's the, but that's kind of it so it was, i think it's a really fascinating conversation about Romanian cinema beyond the festival yeah. which is which is fascinating so yeah that was that was really insightful and I look forward to talking a bit about that afterwards fantastic so this is myself talking with the film critic and film academic Andre Gorzo So I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Andre Gorzo, who is a Romanian film critic and has published in publications including 24 Fund magazine and Old Dilemma newspaper. He is also the professor of film studies at the National University of Theatre and Film in Bucharest. And his research interests include the aesthetics and politics of the post-2000 new Romanian cinema, the cinema of the Cold War, the, the work of Hungarian filmmaker Miklos Jansko, and the history of found footage filmmaking. And he's also a translator, um, particularly of the work of Graham Greene, which uh, fascinates me. Maybe we'll, we'll get onto that at some point. But Andres, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Dario. So I've been uh, watching a lot of uh, Romanian films recently. And of course, my partner is Romanian, as you know. So I'm catching up with the, the history and the culture and the cinema, of course. But I thought I'd, I'd start, you know, we always ask kind of similar questions to, to begin with to, to our guests. But how has life been for you during the pandemic in terms of the shifting uh, nature of film exhibition and the fact that production has halted in many, in many ways. And I understand as well that Romania and Bucharest has less stringent um, lockdown than we're experiencing in London. So how's the last sort of nine months to a year been for you? Well, we did have some lockdown, but yeah, it was less stringent. Most of it was last spring from March till May. But yeah, it is true that in autumn, when the second wave of the virus came, the, measure, the measures uh, taken were less severe. I mean, cinemas were closed, of course, as were schools and restaurants, but you could still walk around the city. So yeah, the second wave uh, wasn't that bad for us. But as for film production and film exhibition, that was as bad as it comes. In terms of your um, your teaching, have you thought to yourself about what the future of the kind of content that you're going to be teaching might be in the aftermath of this? Because we've been kind of thinking about, wow, are we are we really going to be teaching the same kind of stuff again? Oh, yes, I yes yes I have. What, what what do you think about about that? I mean, would you advance some conclusions about that? You, you mean the content of the of the of the teaching, or you mean the methods? We've been thinking quite intensely really about what what kind of film production and film exhibition is going to look like post the pandemic i mean even are we even going to get back to the the idea that there is going to be an exhibition window that is for cinemas only and then movies go to streaming i think that this has pushed everything into the kind of streaming realm and we may have moved into a sort of post auditorium world so therefore and then when you get onto the production side, because we do teach production on our course, it, the question then becomes, how do you start training practitioners 
to work in this environment? And like you say, is is it all going to be very small budget, Zoom based, shooting on your phones? And the the idea of a kind of production in the larger sense of that is something for the past in terms of what we teach. I don't know. I maybe it wouldn't be so bad, you know. I mean, I I I can imagine a good or goodish scenario because you you know that the 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 old ways of making films they were rather too laborious and expensive and maybe not that rational and i'm not speaking about big budget hollywood or hollywood like filmmaking i'm i'm also thinking about the art cinema you, you know the kind of films that went to the big festivals the kind of films that were being screened in the Cannes film festival main competition because you you know they take years to finance you know all this european financing putting together the budget of a film from different sources and it take years and and maybe if the possibility appeared for a lighter easier less expensive way of making fi- a third way of, of making films, a third cinema to go back to that 1960s terminology with the first cinema, the second cinema, and the third cinema. You know, what, what you're saying, shooting on iPhone, shooting a, a more guerrilla type of, uh, of filmmaking, it wouldn't be so bad. Uh, on, on the other hand, I'm wondering whether there will be an audience for this new type of uh, filmmaking because people tend to gravitate towards tv series and uh stuff like that yeah no i I think you you make very good points it's interesting sort of talking about that idea of a a guerrilla filmmaking or a a a new wave of the 21st century and and you know it, it sort of relates back to all of the different waves that have come 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 about at different points in time and i think it syncs up a little bit with this idea of the problems we have with truth and authenticity and the idea of fake news, all of these things kind of feed into this idea that the the very nature of representation and, and how we see the relationship between film and the world, it needs to have a, almost seems like it needs to have a new revolution because on the one hand, there's $250 million blockbusters and then zero budget movies and that gap seems to be widening and then there's television in, in the middle. So maybe some kind of new revolution in that sense is something that could be on the cards. Yeah, I, I can I can very much see a new type of filmmaking emerging from this, but I'm not so sure about an audience for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I have this feeling that the kind of people who 20 or 25 years ago were more adventurous in their film going... The, the number of people um, who are truly adventurous in, in, in the kind of the kinds of stuff they want to see is dwindling because a lot of them, you know, when it comes down to it right now, they seem to prefer watching uh, TV series. No, I, th- I, th- I think that's very true. And, and there doesn't seem to be the, the sense that film has a significance in the same way that it did maybe when you or you and I were getting into cinema and, and like, in the UK, for example, we had kind of three television channels when I first started growing, and then it went to four. And there was a curation around cinema that that was actually, even though you had only four channels, there was a wide selection of different types of cinema that you would watch because that was all that was on television. So I don't know. It, obviously, it was a very different context in in Romania in the in the 80s and, say, in the UK in the 80s. But I wonder what your your sort of formative experiences were of getting into cinema. It was strange in some ways because, yeah, I'm a child of the 1980s and 
the 1980s in Romania were very particular. There were times of total austerity, and especially in the first part of the 80s, they had basically stopped importing American and Western films. So there were new, there were no new American or even French or Italian or West German releases in the cinemas. So they were showing the old films. For example, they brought, I don't know, uh, the first Star Wars, and they also brought Empire Strikes Back, that was from 1980, and they brought it here in 1981. But after 1981, they stopped bringing American films, so they didn't bring The Return of the Jedi, for, uh, for, for example. And yeah, we were watching again and again the, 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 the old films, um, and also films on televisions. Most people still had black and white television sets in Romania in the 1980s, and um, there was only one uh, television channel, and the program, it kept dwindling, you know. It was, by the end of the 80s, there were only about two hours on air. But you could still see old Hollywood films from the 30s and 40s. And they made a big impression on me, those, you know, some Frank Capra films, and some Humphrey Bogart films, and some old Errol Flynn films. And... I saw those in the 80s on TV and there was so little to see that the, their impact on me was huge. I, I mean, the, I, I found them as exciting as a kid from the 30s and 40s may have found them. Then, of course, by the end of the 80s, there were VCRs in Romania. Not, my, not, not many, but there were some. And my family acquired a VCR and there were a lot of pirated videotapes. And that's how at the end of the 80s, just before the, the, the regime change, I had managed to, to see a lot of the Hollywood stuff from the 80s, uh, which was, you know, exciting for, for, for a kid, the Spielberg stuff and all that. At, at a certain point, I started to become a serious reader of film criticism. That was, I, I was still very young. It, I was in high school. In fact, it was slightly earlier than that. Just before I started high school, actually, I started to, to read seriously into film criticism. Uh, and when I was in the 10th grade, I already knew that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And I was writing letters to a cinephile magazine that used to exist at the time in Bucharest. And yes, it had to do with many thing, things. One of those things was um, going to the British Council Library in Bucharest and taking out film books. So I started to do that shortly after 1990, after the revolution, after the regime change. I started to go to the British Library in Bucharest and take out film books and reading about films that I loved. For example, I remember they had a book about the films of Richard Lester that was by a British academic called The Films of Richard Lester by Neil Seniord. Do you know Neil, Neil Seniord's book? On, I think it appeared in 1985 or 1986. And I was interested in some of Lester's films. Of course, he had done... Superman 2 and Superman 3. But, you know, it happened to be fairly complex criticism, academic criticism, not an easy uh, read for a 15-year-old from Bucharest in the early 1990s, but I stuck with it and reread passages from it. And yeah, that was, that was important for me. And later, of course, after finishing high school, I went to the National University of Theatre and Film in Bucharest and I studied film history and film theory. And I also went to NYU for a year and got deeper and 
deeper into both into journalistic, essayistic uh, film criticism and into academic film studies. That's always one one thing that that has really interested me: the kind of parallels between a a journalistic and an academic life, and the differences, not just the parallels, but also the different types of writing and the ways in which academia is interested in film theory and analyzing the the underlying meanings of films from whatever approach it might take. But then the sort of journalistic aspect, which is maybe more along the lines of film reviewing and trying to say on some level, using whatever criteria, whether a film is good or bad. And I just wondered how you kind of yourself, you know, negotiate in your own mind how to, how to position yourself in relation to those two. Well, um, I was originally, and I still am, a film buff, you know, uh, a cinephile, an aficionado. And the kind of criticism that I initially fell in love with was a criticism of appreciation. You know, it was rhapsodic. Actually saying whether the film review wasn't necessarily my, the weekly review or the daily review wasn't necessarily, it never was necessarily my favorite form, saying whether a film is good or bad. I, I mean, I, I love reading review. I find them necessary. I, I, they fulfill a vital task in the culture and all that, but it wasn't necessarily my, my, my favorite form. My favorite form was the longer essay, but still, you know, the, the, not, not necessarily the academic essay, but the, the, the kind of essays, longer essays that, uh, let's say, Susan Zontag used to write or Bazin used to write written for a more general readership, for an intellectual readership, but more general, not necessarily for scholars and students and uh, other academics, and written with a literary appreciation for language and, you, you know, meant to, to help people know films better, but also love films better and appreciate films better. Uh, and, and in some ways, that's still my favorite form, the kind of writing I still like best to do. I, I can I can also do more scholarly types of uh, things in which I try to live at the door, the more excitable side of my interest in films. But you know, some of my some some of my favorite critics, some of my favorite British critics, were both academics and great film lovers and cinephile critics. Raymond Durnat, for example, or Peter Wallen, even Peter Wallen who was an academic, but he wrote all those essays for the London Review of Books yeah, yeah, or for yeah. Sight and Sound. Or for... And Victor Perkins was like that as well, and I really liked his, his criticism. Victor yeah. Perkins, Victor Perkins, all that, all that generation, all that generation. Yeah. Robin Wood was like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. It was easier at the time because the, the academic field of film studies was just being established. And it was established, it was basically created by, by people like, like, like those who came from journalism. So it was it was easier to move between uh, uh, one and the other. They were not that separated. You, you should be able to do both. I think it's what's it's interesting what's happened now in the era of the internet as well because you've got you've almost split up into three. So there's academics and then there's legacy media journalists. So writing ostensibly for print or what used to be print publications, and then you've just got the online blogosphere and you know there's a lot of tension between all of uh, those three kind of elements i think when it comes to criticism which is an interesting and also i don't know it's difficult to kind of reconcile what the aims of each one 
is now. Maybe that's one of the, the issues that film criticism, if you think about it broadly, has right now. That's true. On the other hand, there's also some overlap, I think, between the blogos because the blogosphere yeah. that was, you know, that was a chance for academics like David Bordwell to get out of the academic ghetto and reach a wider audience. You, you know, it also worked mm-hmm. like 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 that. Some people who really wrote for a small academic readership and they could go out and maybe adjust their discourse here and there and reach a, a, um, a wider audience. But yeah, it is a bit messy. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we do the podcast, actually. Again, it provides a different kind of space to be able to um, engage in, in critical thinking around film in a different kind of way, I think. Um, I just wanted to pick up on what you said a little bit about the cinema of Romania in, in the 80s before you know, the fall of the wall and the, and the end of the Ceausescu era. You know, in, in the West, in Western criticism particularly, they like very clear categories. And, and one of those categories is the idea of national cinema and national cinema being something that's opposed to kind of Hollywood as the dominant force. And I just wondered, is there a sense in your mind that there are a clear parameters of a national cinema in Romania before the new wave and and how much really was that kind of intertwined with the politics and sociology of the country and and the communist era? Well, to the extent that we have such a notion here, and we have one, it must be tied with the cinema of the 60s and the 70s and to a lesser degree the 80s. In the 60s, they built the big Romanian film studios. There had been very little like that before, and they built them to compete with Cinecita in Italy. And for a few years in the 60s, they invested and they grew confident and they tried to develop big co-productions with Western countries like Germany, and they tried to develop popular genres. So yes, the traditional idea of... Um, Romanian national cinema must be bound up with some of these genres, which were the big patriotic epics. We, we had this par excellence, the, the Romanian film genre of the, of the Ceausescu era. It was the big patriotic epic about heroic ancestors, which were either mythical Thracian tribes resisting the Roman invasion, uh, and later medieval kings kings and warriors and statesmen who were resisting the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. And Ceausescu, whose, uh, whose, whose version of communism became more and more nationalistic, uh, he had this idea of Romanian cinema contributing with this string of epics. Actually, it was one big epic told in installments, and it was meant to celebrate Romanian glory through the centuries. And yes, the idea of the so this traditional idea of Romanian cinema conjures up these nationalistic epics. It also conjures up a number of really popular comedy from the comedies from the 1970s, which cinematically were nothing, but they had beloved comedians whom audiences really, really wanted to see in close-up, delivering lines, and a lot of people who saw those films then, still remember, still know those lines by heart. So yes, that was the traditional idea of Romanian cinema. It was certainly, it was certainly not one of the more highly evolved 
Eastern European cinemas, like the Soviet cinema and Hungarian cinema and Czechoslovak cinema and Polish cinema. It was fairly primitive. It was interesting to me as well because you said earlier on that you know there were there was American imported movies, but then they they stopped. So was there a sense that the the politics of this national cinema, which as you said it has this sort of patriotic fervor, there was always within cinema. There's always this this sense of how much is what we're being seen kind of just propaganda pro pro state you know, nationalistic propaganda? And, and did the American movies that came in or the non-Romanian movies that came in, did they interrupt that and were seen as dangerous at all? Yeah, yeah. There had always been during the state socialist era. Okay, the state socialist era was divided into two different eras. First, we had the Stalinist era in the 1950s, in which it was simple. Most of the films we had were Soviet there was very little stuff coming from the West. And then came the Ceausescu years. And originally, the Ceausescu years, there was a phase of liberalization when it was fairly cosmopolitan and uh, there was a certain degree of opening towards the West. And American and British and French and Italian films uh, were important that they became kind of popular. There was a strict control as to what kind of uh, Western films Romanian audiences were being allowed to see. So the control was, 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 was really strict, and, and uh, a lot of very important Western films were not allowed to be released in Romania, but some of them were. But then, at the end of the 70s, and especially in the 80s, uh, the Ceausescu re- regime became more isolated and they, they put an end to all that. Yeah, it, they, they were partly ideological. The regime wanted to protect itself against all this Western influence, but it was also economical. I mean, there was a period of austerity, of enforced austerity in the 80s. Ceausescu had this notion, he wanted Romania to become totally autonomous, autonomous both in relation to the West and in relation to the Soviet Union. And he had this idea that uh, Romania shouldn't have any external debts, any financial debts to the West. And all our foreign debt should be paid. And that's why in the 80s, there was this enforced regime of austerity, meaning shortages of food and electricity and consumer goods. And of course, also, also, uh, also films. But, you know, even before the communists came, before the communists came, uh, the fascists had tried to use cinema in the 1930s in Romania as a propaganda tool, but they had been less successful at it. The communists, at least, they, they did build a, a real film industry in Romania, because before they came, there was very little. Uh, so the communists, when they came in, in, the, in the late 40s, they nationalized everything. They started to build big studios. They sent filmmakers to be trained in Moscow. And they tried to de- de- develop a range of popular genres. So actually, they did a lot. for uh, uh, and, and in the 60s, uh, progress was fairly swift. What they didn't do, there, there were a number of things they didn't do. They didn't, they didn't try to document the world that they were trying to transform, they were trying to recreate. Uh, It's interesting. There was a studio, there was a film studio whose function was to produce documentaries, nonfiction. But what's significant is that it was only produced, it was only allowed to produce short films. 
so not features. And its position was somewhat marginal. It was hierarchically inferior. During the, the, the state socialist era, the big films were not supposed to be documentaries. They were supposed to be these big pedagogical didactic fictions. As for documentary genres, as, as, for, as for documentary genres like cinema verite and direct cinema, very little of that penetrated here before, before the fall of the communist regime. And actually, even before the, the 2000s, even before the era of the new Romanian cinema. Uh, and wh- also what, what, uh, what, what co- the communists didn't do, what uh, cinema didn't do in the state socialist era, it didn't try to deal with history and historical events in an adult, unromantic way. I mean, in Romania, in, in, uh, in the 1960s and in the 1970s, we didn't have anything anything comparable with what filmmakers like Andrzej Wajda and Miklos Jancho were doing in Poland or Hungary. I mean, what they were doing, they were trying to demystify history, these uh, Polish and Hungarian filmmake, filmmakers. They were trying to poke at, at sore spo- spots in their nation's pasts. And, and in Romania, filmmakers weren't encouraged to do this. They weren't encouraged to t- to, to to touch uh, history in a in a critical, adult, open-eyed uh, way, and I'm not talking about uh, recent events. I'm talking about pre-communist history. For for example, in in during the communist era, they 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 didn't make any films about Romania's participation in the Holocaust, and you imagine that the communist would have allowed people to do fil- to make films about that because that was before that was you know th- those were fascist crimes but uh, but no that wasn't encouraged there was no mention of that you know because there was nothing that would make us appear as anything other than the good guys so yes this genre the his- the historical film as it was called here it developed as a profoundly infantilizing genre and these things only started to, 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 to change after 1990 with films like Lucian Pintilia's Un- Unforgettable Summer, for example. And especially after 2000, filmmakers started to look at the past in a critical way. When you get to the, the kind of fall of Ceausescu and then after that, you know, there's all the political ramifications and the social ramifications. But in terms of cinema... You know, a few years later, then there is the arrival of this Romanian new wave. And in a sense, there is the possibility of connection with, you know, the auteurist cinema of the, re- of the rest of Europe and then links to the new waves of previous cinemas that, we, that we've talked about. And, you know, I've, I've watched a, f- a few of the early ones. I just watched Stuff and Doe for the first time the other, the other day, which is obviously Christy Pugh, who's you know, probably the biggest name in, in Romanian New Wave. But what's interesting is the, I mean, well, there's lots of interesting stuff, but the idea of a Romanian sense of realism, because obviously realism is one of the fundamental tenets of addressing some of the issues you've talked about in terms of showing the truth of Romanian society, the Romanian government. But it's interesting how there are different variations of what realism is and how much the Romanian realism didn't initially in, through the films actually tackle Ceausescu or the history in a direct way. It seems that 
the lens is turned back on individual people and and their day-to-day lives and the the big transcendent stories actually came out of those smaller stories i think in the early part of the romanian new wave does that kind of chime with the with your view on it absolutely yeah it it uh, it it chimes perfectly christy puyu um yeah he was he, he started all that and the film you mentioned stefan dow which was his first feature that was also the birth of the new Romanian cinema. It was in 2001, and it was the, f- the first film of the new Romanian cinema. Christy Puyu, he had, he had started filmmaking in, uh, in Switzerland in the 1990s, and he had become um, particularly interested in observational, fly-on-the-wall, direct cinema documentaries, in the work of people like uh, Frederick Wiseman, uh, Raymond Depardon, people like that were doing documentaries. And I, I said it before, and it, but it has to be stressed that nobody in Romania at the time talked about such films. I mean, such films weren't shown at the Cinematheque. Critics hadn't written about them. Only maybe a handful of Romanian film buffs knew of them. And Christy Puyu, he became also interested in in theories of realism in the cinema and in attempts to redefine realism. And he actually, his BA thesis was on on realism in the cinema, ideas of realism. So you can say that he was in sync in the 1990s with what what other people internationally were doing. You know, people like the Dardenne brothers in Belgium and Abbas Kiarostami in, in Iran. And, and others. So when he made his first feature in 2001, uh, Dahl, he really had this well-developed ideas about the use of real time and the representation of people just eating or doing their work and stuff like that. And the international success of his second feature, his second feature was the death of Mr. Lazarescu in 2005. And the success, the international critical success of that film, it really redefined Romanian cinema. It turned a lot of people's thinking around and it converted them to this form of rigorous, tense realism, which really became the Romanian cinematic recipe for the next 10 years or or so. Uh, That was absolutely vital what he did, what Puyu did, the thing he started, the emulation he started, that really changed the face of... uh, Romanian cinema. You know, it was his idea that fiction films should look more like documentaries, should be closer to, should move closer to documentaries. They should document processes and how things uh, get done and procedures. And they should use long takes and real time and staging in depth, uh, depth of field. They should build suspense out of little, small, little daily things. It was very close to André Bazin's ideas of realism, you know, the André Bazin's theories of realism, which he had developed in the late 40s and 50s, most often writing about the Italian neorealist films. And yeah, you're right about what you say about uh, the fall of Ceausescu. It was obviously crucial for these filmmakers, but they didn't make a lot of films about that. This is true. I mean, most of these filmmakers in, 19, in 1989, when, when the Ceausescu regime fell, they were, I don't know, they were between, between the ages of, the youngest were 13, 14, 15, the oldest were 20, 21, 22. 
And yeah, well, few of the films they later made engaged directly with the events themselves or with life in the 1980s. But yes, that was clearly defining for them. The 1980s and the revolution were clearly defining for them. They were interested, I suppose, in the fallout of, of all that. I mean, they were questioning the world, they were questioning the contemporary world, but uh, in relation to that huge cataclysmic breaking point, which was for them December 1989, when the Ceausescu regime had had fallen. But one of the reasons why they postponed doing films directly about the Ceausescu era or about the, the fall of, the, of his regime, one of the reasons why they, they postponed that, and even when they made films about that, like four months, three weeks, and two days, they concentrated, as you said, on individual stories. And they let the, the, the big picture emerge from the, the details of the individual stories, as you observed earlier. One of the reasons they, they did that was that they were reacting against the Romanian cinema of the 1990s. And the Romanian cinema of the 1990s, most of it had been hysterically anti-communist. You, you know, they were, all of these filmmakers who had suffered under censorship before 1989, and in the 1990s, they found themselves free to say whatever they liked. And they couldn't find the form to say it, you know, and, and, and they wanted to make this big statement and to encapsulate everything in their films. And they, they didn't know, they, they were not rigorous. They, were, they, didn't, they lacked the discipline, they lacked the focus. And when Christy Puyo and his generation came in the 2000s, they reacted against that lack of rigor. They reacted, they reacted against that lack of discipline. And they reacted against that very primitive anti-communist, uh, very strident anti-communist shouting in the 1990 films. I read your uh, piece on Police Adjective, which is the Porambio film from 2008. And I think it really addresses... Some of the things you were talking about in terms of that idea of real-time documentation. And it's a really interesting film because it's a film that allows us to observe the observer. And as you say, it's kind of not just about the process, but the ethical dilemmas that kind of come out of that. But the inter interesting thing to me in your piece is this idea of real-time, and in especially in, in contemporary film theory, I suppose, that real-time is often really understood as kind of dead time or time that the director is making you feel the weight of time, either on purpose or is not cutting in a way that actually is getting getting the action moving. And there's a whole sort of area of film studies, if, we, if you think about slow cinema, that, that is dedicated to this idea. And I don't know whether you think sort of through the years, looking, looking back from now, th these films... They, you know, they're called realist, and they definitely had a realist intention with that in that regard when they when they were made. But looking back from our perspective, it's almost as if that style is announcing itself a lot more now from the 21st century, when everything because we're, we're living in a society that images are so immediate and the cutting is so fast all the time. It looks like oh, this director is really going for the long take in a stylized kind of way when, interestingly, I don't think it was the intention back in the time. Well, I suppose the long take and long take real-time aesthetics, they certainly were for some of these Romanian filmmakers, at least at the beginning, they were realistic devices. There's also a reaction against 
the fast cutting of mainstream films. For a while, a, a lot of a slow cinema became almost synonymous with festival cinema. So yeah, you announced your 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 intention. You announced where you stood, and and of course, there's also a kind of stylization which emerges from this insistent use of long takes and and real time. And it is the case with police adjective. Police adjective, it belongs to a phase in which the new Romanian cinema actually starts to become more and more self-conscious about its own realism, and it starts to question the artifice it involves, the meaning of the representation. Uh, it's clear that Porumboyu, when, when he made that film, he was starting to go after such questions, questions like, is the camera basically a recording tool, a tool for recording the real? Okay, maybe it is. But in that case, where does meaning come from? From words? What are words? Are words something that you superimpose on the brute facts of reality to create meaning or the illusion of meaning? And he starts working on these abstract themes. So police objective is no longer a slice of life. It, it's very self-reflexive. And it inaugurates a very self-reflexive face in, uh, in the new Romanian cinema. Uh, Puyo also made a film which is called Aurora, which is like an answer in, in some ways to police objective. And then Porumboyu came back with a film called Metabolism. And this is, this is the self-reflexive, the, the, the really cerebral face of the new Romanian cinema. But I think it often happens with realist movements. They start out with filmmakers who are driven by an idea of realism. And then after a while, they start questioning themselves and they start questioning the artifice which is incorporated into any realist aesthetic. And their films become more self-reflexive and they become more artificial and they become more stylized uh, and they become more abstract. It's, it's something that keeps happening. It happened to, to Italian neorealism. You know, it's the difference between the great neorealist films of the 40s and 50s, on the one hand, and on the other hand, something like Antonioni's films of the 60s, which are modernist, self-reflexive films. But it happens with, with Iranian cinema, with Kiarostami. Uh, it happened with the Taiwanese directors uh, in the 1980s and 90s, people like Edward Young and... Uh, so yeah, it's usually a new cinema like this, a new a new wave like this. Um, it, it, initially, the filmmakers they, they they basically want to be realistic. They want to tell the truth, and then they start asking themselves all these questions, which lead them away from uh, from the slice of life and from uh, stuff like that. Another film I wanted to ask you about, or a director I wanted to ask you about, and and I think this is my favourite of the Romanian filmmakers that I've seen, is is Mungju. And everybody always points to Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days, as you've already mentioned, but my favourite of his is Graduation. And the reason I, I, I really like that film is because it it taps into, I think, one of the big concerns that I seem to see or seem to notice for Romanian filmmakers and indeed Romanians. So you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what my girlfriend tells me. And it's it's that sense of having to deal with the 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 post-communist um kind of social organization and the the kind of low levels of corruption that 
you can see at all levels of society and and the ways in which individuals have to kind of justify crossing ethical lines because that's the way that that Romanian society still tends to operate and i just thought it was a really fascinating story that and and one of the most kind of mature films that that had the story was in, very well developed but still retained that sense of the new wave aesthetic corruption is certainly one of the great themes of this new Romanian cinema. And yeah, as for Mungiun, he he's a tremendously skillful filmmaker. The way I see Mungiu's work, what he did, he brought elements of suspense and melodrama and even sensationalism, which Christy Puyu hadn't allowed himself to use. You know, when he began, Puyu had a strong idea of, of, of what cinema was for him. And he had it from the beginning. Munjiu was different in the beginning. He was looking around. He was trying different things. He was trying to solve this riddle of what kind of Romanian product could interest uh, the international festival market. And the success of Cristi Puyo's The Death of Mr. Lazarescu, it helped Munjiu crystallize what he wanted to do. So when he made four months, three weeks, and two days, and which was his second feature, and it doesn't look anything like his first feature, which he had made in 2002. It's very different. And what happened in between is that he had seen Christy Puyo's films, and he had changed his mind, and he, he learned to imitate this concentration, the discipline of this time of storytelling. But he also wasn't afraid to push the pedal of old suspense mechanisms. You know, in four months, three three weeks, and two days, that's all. That's also a very gripping film, and it's sometimes gripping in a very basic way. With, with those two women uh, who are alone, trapped by a rapist, awful hotel room. Uh, you know, in a way, the the emotional charge of that scene, the emotional pressure, it's as old as D.W. Griffith, really. But of course, the melodrama. He's very skillful at combining the melodrama with. Uh, stretches of that time, of time in which nothing seems to happen. The, the, the way I, I, I see it and the way I would put it, what, what Munjiu did, he distilled what Christy Puyo had been doing, he distilled that into, into a smashing middle-brow formula. Uh, and that's why his films were the most successful, the most internationally successful films of the new Romanian, uh, the new Romanian cinema. I mean, they hit audiences in a more direct way. And of course, you're right about graduation and this theme of corruption, which you find in a lot of the other films of the new Romanian cinema. All of these films are filled with scenes in which citizens, individual citizens, they are trying to negotiate with representatives of the state, with representatives of state authority, you know, who are either irascible or irritable or uh, rude, or they are expecting some kind of bribe. And scenes like that are almost a, a staple of the new of the new Romanian uh, cinema. But you know, I did you see uh, that? very successful German film from 2016, which is called Tony Erdman, and which is set in Romania. I, I was particularly interested, as a Romanian, and because the film is set in Romania, set there, yeah, I, yeah. I was particularly interested in, in this satirical dimension, in this satirical element of it. And I, I, 
I particularly liked uh, its depiction of multinationals, a big corporation, international corporations operating in Romania, and how colonial their cast of mind is, and how how subservient and obsequious uh, Romanian employees are, and it it really set me thinking, and it made me ask myself why the big directors of the new Romanian cinema, people like Puyu and Mungiu, obviously they did great things, but one thing they hadn't done, I, I don't think they had ever truly turned a truly harsh critical eye on Romanian capitalism. I mean, my, my sense is that they had always preferred to deal with the fallout of the communist experience. So they, they made films about, they made contemporary films, and they were very critical films, but they were especially critical of state institutions and their monstrous inefficiency and their monstrous corruption. And this, of course, is a, is a, is a great subject. All of that is true. But I suddenly realized that Western capital, uh, you know, investors, multinationals operating in Romania, stuff like that, they weren't criticizing that because my feeling is that because these people, they, 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 they had grown up in the 1980s, they were looking upon the West, you know, as good. Capitalism was supposed to be good for them because communism was such a mess. And, and you know, they, they saw communism at its worst in the, in the 1980s. And that's why criticizing capital, multinationals, investors, was sort of taboo to them, I think. So they preferred, they, they, they felt more at ease, they felt more at home criticizing Romanian state institutions. I was just going to say that, the, have you seen the recent film Collective by Alexander Nanu? Because I think that film actually, that, that touches upon what you're talking about a little bit more in, in relation to the, the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I mean, I don't think it touches on it directly, but it definitely talks about that idea of the way in which Romania and its contemporary constitution in relation to capital is is being utilized in ways that clearly you know led to that disaster and maybe that it's beginning to be addressed in in that way but i think talking to my partner she she she's kind of the same in terms of that that idea of once you've come out of the communist regime there, there can be nothing that's worse than that so it's very difficult then to to cri- criticize capitalism in a sort of overt way yeah, and, and th- th- that was striking to me uh, when I saw um, Tony Erdman, because it was obvious that this film, this the German woman who had made this film, had no such qualms, sure. had no problem with criticizing <laughs> uh, uh, big corporations, and yeah, and and you know the, she had no problem in looking at how those people were, how 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 those German or whatever expats were, were treating the the Romanian colleagues and saying, oh, this is colonial, this is semi-colonial. And you don't find this sort of insight in Romanian films. But yeah, speaking about collective, yeah, uh, you, you may be right. You may be right about that. Maybe it's, uh, of course, it touches on pharmaceutical companies. Although I would say that the emphasis, the emphasis still falls on the Romanian state and its institutions and its political, and its political parties. It's a very gripping film, collective, and it's a it's on a very serious subject. What what, what can I say? I actually I prefer the first part, where the filmmakers are following those journalists 
making their investigation. I actually, I feel a bit uneasy with the second part where, where they start following that young health minister who wants to reform the system because they suddenly, they suddenly follow someone who is in power. And I think they're too romantic about him. They don't have enough critical distance. You know, that, that young politician, because he's a young politician and he's not in the opposition. He's in power. He's like Kevin Kevin Costner as Elliot Ness, you know. He he may be a little awkward, he may be a little he may be a little naive, but this makes him only more of a hero. And and in the end, the the filmmakers they they tie the matter of justice, justice either triumphing or being defeated, they tie it to the outcome of those parliamentary elections at the end of 2016. And they suggest that had the, the outcome of those elections been different, that's, that's the, suggest, the suggestion in the end, that had the outcome of those elections been different, had a different political party won, things would have been different, would have been better for Romania. And it's an analysis which looked at from the vantage point of 2021 it's simply wrong because today the people who, according to collective, according to this documentary, should have won, they are in power now. They 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 actually won the elections last year, and that young crusading reformer is again the health minister. So he's currently health minister, and well, things are still messy. So the my problem with with collective is that maybe how should I phrase it, the director, Alexander Nanau, I think he's, he's too romantic about things that, in my view, he shouldn't be romantic about. And in the end, I think there's there's this tendency to tie whatever's wrong and corrupt in Romania with a single political party. And he's he's a bit too much into, into hero worship. I mean, it's a film about heroic individuals standing up to the system. That works better with the, the journalists in the first half because they are definitely outside of the system. And it's it's kind of fascinating how they come from a sports newspaper. So the implication is that the, the mainstream media don't want to touch this and they try to vilify the, the, the journalists. But yeah, it was very it was it was almost as if the the politician had invited the camera crew in at some point in the film and they just thought, oh well, we'll make the second half of the film follow follow him. And and yeah that do agree with what you're saying in terms of that sense of the the outcome of the um, the elections becomes the big crux when really that's not how the film started out at all. Yeah, and and the the seasoned journalist in the in the first part, well, he's very he's very respected. He he's a very honorable man and a great journalist and so on and so forth. The young politician in the second part, I think, he's also a very well meaning politician. But but I, I I'm not talking about that about how they are. I'm talking about about the way the film uses them as two faces of virtue, two manifestations of the good. And the film, in in my view, is 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 too simply about good and evil, uh, good against evil. And in that way, it's totally unlike the new Romanian cinema of Puyo and Munjiu, which never, I think, reduced issues to a clear cut fight between good and evil. But but it's a it's a gripping film. It's a gripping film, and it's certainly a hair raising story. Andre, thanks so much for taking so much time out to talk to me. I really really appreciate it. And your encyclopedic knowledge of of cinema is just you know most welcome to to listen to. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. 
Doamniță, am durere de cap. Tu nu vei sănătos. Le bei amestecat. Alo. Alo, da. Hai, 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 So, yeah, thanks so much to Andre for taking the, the time out. And, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of lag on the line. So um, I thank him again for, for dealing with that. Always the struggles with the remote recording. But I got I got so much out of not just recording the interview, but reading his work and then watching the films in the in the lead up. But, uh, but Neil, yeah, you've had a listen. So what do you make of some of the things that came out of that? Yeah, I think it's a really great conversation you know well done for pulling it together and yeah really really enjoyable sort of back and forth but you probed him really well um and it was yeah it's always nice to hear people thinking about answers i think he's a very thoughtful a very thoughtful critic and scholar so that was that uh, that really came across which was really nice yeah i mean this there, there was a lot that that came out of it i think i really liked his sort of description of film culture in the sort of the 80s and 90s and then you you sort of asked him about the kind of the beyond the festival and sort of world and it it is a reminder that what we kind of have come to consider national cinema in i guess you know the academy and, and certainly sort of you know film criticism is really film festival cinema you know and that yeah. has, has largely historically been of a piece i would say Obviously, there's you know there is a spectrum within that, but it certainly feels like that the films that come to define a country in, in in the West are are ones that can be grouped together by a kind of a style and seem to be saying something again sort of similar in terms of its political reflection on the country. So it was really interesting to hear him just talk about the mainstream state sure. filmmaking in even if that's not necessarily quote unquote a good. I, I'm always I'm always fascinated by, you know, what makes up the the mainstream commercial output of a of a nation, you know, because I think that sometimes you get the sense that if if it's not the new, you know, the Romanian new wave is a good example of of like almost presented as if they weren't making films before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and of course they were. They were. There was an industry that was, you know, for for people, but it was rooted very much in in so much of Romanian life around the kind of the state and the state's ideas of what it wanted to present. So that was that was an absolutely fantastic uh, sort of insight into into the country. Yeah, just on that, I think it's really interesting how the sort of coming together of film festivals and the post-war sentiment from the 50s, which created, arguably created a kind of universal international post-war style, still defines so much of what we see as European art house cinema, what we understand of it. And and a lot of that is to do with realism. And we talked an awful lot about realism there. But, you know, and, and, and I think it's, it's interesting how, you know, you look at the Dardenne brothers, you look at Ken Loach, they are the darlings of the, of the film festival circuit. And I sort of alluded to that idea of are we are we sort of stuck in this kind of idea of realism and 
that is then I, I suppose maybe it's always, it always gets a new lease of life, doesn't it, realism, every few years? Because whatever go, is going on at the time, particularly right now when we're talking a lot about where, where is truth, that sense of what, what cinema's responsibility is to realism, it's, good, it's something that's always going to get kind of recycled and, and brought back and thought through again. And then the, the parameters of what a realist aesthetic might look like is always going to be at the forefront of how we discuss cinema because of that kind of... Even in the digital era, that sense of indexicality, the notion that something actually happened in front of the camera at a specific historical time and place. Yeah, and hearing him talk about Poran Boyu's really intentional deconstruction of those ideas in his career, I thought was really interesting. And it, it's a reminder that even within a a country with a cinema that only maybe only recently engaged with those ideas of realism in a really direct sense it's already questioning it and you know it's not it's not a lazy realism in the sense of you know you know we're just going to plonk the camera and record sure. day-to-day life in Romania it's already become reflexive and talk maybe a bit on the bonus but someone like Radu Judah you know who's that's not realist in any sense, you know, or certainly not the the film I watched the other day, Uppercase Print, you know. But what was interesting is that, and I really like this because it, it really made sense having watched or rewatched The Death of Mr. Lazarescu was how that one of the influences, one of the formative influences was Frederick Wiseman yeah, on, yeah. on Pew, you know, and that idea of a kind of an observational documentary style and using that as the realist basis for these long takes and this the recording of process which i thought was absolutely fantastic to kind of think about it in that way and and how that yeah particularly mr lazarescu is is death by bureaucracy as much as is anything else you know sure so that sure. was really interesting because and, and that made a lot of sense that 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 would be the style that would feel most sort of antithetical to a baroque propaganda you know and also interesting what was which you know that gap the the ceausescu era propaganda and then what happened between the new wave and how the, the new wave were responding, not necessarily to that, but to this kind of anti-communist explosion that happened in the immediate aftermath of of the, sort of the fall of communism in the late 80s, which is just a forgotten period. And again, because those films haven't travelled, it was really nice to kind of have that have that lineage laid out. So you can you can really see how these filmmakers are responding to their own cinematic history but it's not cinematic history we know so we define it in terms of realism as we know it through the festival circuit you know which i think is a is a fascinating is a fascinating alignment yeah and do that that lazy thing which happens a lot when we talk about things like asian cinema and african cinema which is just to lump eastern european cinema or balkan cinema you know as as representing a certain thing and and that that whole idea that that Romania doesn't have a history of cinema in the same way that Poland does or Czech, Czechoslovakia, as it was, or the Czech Republic now does, is an interesting one because it it starts to open up those questions of what do we mean by a, a national cinema and what, what, does it, what does it do that's different? You know, is it simply because these things are set within a certain boundaries and within a certain kind of social and political history? And sort of trying to understand what what the realism, as we've like we've talked about the, sp- the specifics of it, what it it is doing within a kind of Romanian context that may be different from these other realisms that we that we see. Um, yeah, and you just mentioned it there. It was interesting about the the ability of Romanian 
filmmakers to be able to critique capitalism. And this is a, an interesting subject because it's when when I when I got together with my girlfriend, the it, it's really interesting how the the concept for her of what capitalism represents in relationship to communism is very very different if you've grown up under a communist system than than we understand. It's like we you know we see capitalist evils everywhere, and it's but yeah when you are born into and grow up in a communist system which. A lot of the elements of that we see on screen in in various different films, but we can never really know what the experience of it is. And you know, I was reminded of that. You know, the critique of Sartre, who and, and and others who, kind of sitting in Paris and saying, you know, how wonderful it is. You know, we, we should strive for a, for a communist u- utopia, and it's all right sipping, you know, Fernet Branca in a Parisian cafe to to be able to say that. Um, but yeah, just pointing towards Tony Erdman and saying that this is a German film that's set in Romania. And has no problem kind of critiquing capitalism and and that that sense of even watching something like Collective, where the problem is not seen as the pharmaceutical industry, it's seen as as the government and government bureaucracy. That's the ultimate evil within Romanian cinema. Whereas you know it's a very different kind of ultimate evil, I think now in 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 the West and especially in sort of you know liberal left wing social democratically informed kinds of cinema that we're used to seeing. Yeah, I think, you know, Marinade is making a film set in Romania and when when there and writing and sort of making it is seeing the effects of capitalism from the Western perspective. But like you say, if you're within it, then you won't understand that context. You'll only understand the, the sort of the post-communist context of, of it, you know. And I think it, it, it might be easier for for people to, to do that. And it'd be interesting to see if globalization continues to, to result in those kind of films being made you know if if those places like romania become much more prominent in terms of sort of the way that the european economy and european sort of business culture operates will we see more films set there that are that are not made by romanian filmmakers and also i think it's important to remember as well that we're asking we but you know like an expectation that the Romanian the Romanian cinema will critique capitalism fails to register the fact that it's a very new system <laughs> you know at least in terms of like what you know what what our relationship to capitalism is much older and has has grown out of a much longer period of seeing its evils kind of slowly grow um so i wonder what Romanian cinema in 50 100 years might might look back on and and have more to to say although right at the end of uppercase print the radu judah that there is a really explicit acknowledgement of this thing where it's a film about a historical case you know and it's kind of sort of dramatic reconstruction of the testimonies as opposed to the actual case and then sort of interspersed with amazing propaganda footage um but right at the end there's a, a very it's clearly shot on video and it's this kind of 360 degree pan of modern Bucharest. And it, it just, it pulls out all of these capitalist symbols, which is not necessarily criticizing it, but it is an overt statement about what's different now. It's hard to not really bristle at the difference in terms of what life was like before and what it's like now. It's a very smart way, but there's no real answer to it. It doesn't feel like a a criticism, but it's certainly a stark contrast. And, you know, I wonder whether more of that will come in as 
as we get further away from that that moment of anything but communism uppercase print is on Mubi at the moment so you can if you're a subscriber to that you can you can check that out and it it's a really interesting uh translation i think of a, a, theat- a theatrical experience isn't it it's a play but it's it's very much a avant-garde formalist play that then has been translated to the to the cinema and then and then um radu judah has just won in berlin so with bad luck banging or loony porn and that's that that one yeah won the golden bear didn't it he won the top prize so it'd be interesting interesting to see that do you know anything about that film i know that you shouldn't watch it in front of your kids um right as uh, as jason well luckily i don't have any (laughs) jason wood from home was um homeschooling while attending the Berlinale and said it's, you know, and then I I was talking to Mark Cosgrove for an upcoming episode from The Watershed and he was saying that he wonders whether it'll get a release because because of the kind of the the pornographic content in it. So I think it's a, a really, it's a, yeah... It caused it caused waves, but apparently it's very good. Um, and he's a really interesting filmmaker, I think, and just just generally speaking, yeah. And and certainly someone who seems to be almost responding to the the realism of the 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 you know sort of the, the Romanian new wave in a way that they were responding in the way they were responding to the the kind of the post post communist sort of liberation films, as it were. So yeah, that's um. I think uppercase print is is, is well worth checking out. It's a, a fascinating insight into almost the the state surveillance that you might be familiar with some like the lives of others mixed with this really deep archive of of material um yeah fascinating i really i really liked it and maybe again that this is sort of part of a signaling i mean again i, I don't know the, the the sort of tone of it but maybe there is a sort of start to move to not to critique but just to sort of move away from the relentless bleakness of a lot of uh, Romanian cinema, you know, it's Christian Mungju with his move to graduation, which I really rate. I think has he, even himself is sort of softening that that approach where there there is yeah the, the, there's the kind of realities of what of what is going on here, but but the relentless bleakness and even that there's not there's a sort of not a redemptive ending, but but you know a kind of a hopeful ending or an an, an ending where there's light, you know what I mean, <laughs> where it isn't just kind of re- relentlessly horrible. So. I haven't watched um, Lazarescu for a for a long time. How did that strike you this time around? Quite funny, like that. And that was really interesting right. about rewatching it. Was picking out there's some really funny moments in it, particularly in the early stages of the film. He's a very prickly character, but he, you know, he is very funny. You know, he's got this kind of stubbornness to him, and the actor's delivery, and it might, you know, just be the the subtitling. But it it struck me as as, as very funny. And then the relationship between the neighbour and his wife is very funny. And there's that really kind of, I mean, it feels shocking scene when he arrives at the hospital and the the first doctor, I mean, just tears him apart, you know, like just really horrible to him because he's been, you know, been drinking and he'd he'd obviously had an ulcer operation and they can't, no one can believe that he's still drinking after having an ulcer operation. He's kind of like, well, but he just, he's really, really cruel to him. But I was kind of thinking a, a lot of this feels like, almost like a screwball caper in in, in, in many ways, you know, like he's being shunted around <laughs> yeah, hospitals. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of stubbornness to this character. There's a lot of the dialogue is quite, is quite quick and something these kind of really, really funny asides. It's kind of, it's full of all of this, which you don't, I don't, I didn't get that the first time because you're in the, you know, but knowing how the story goes, you're just spending the time in a different way. And the rewatch kind of really shifted it into feeling much more nuanced in terms of the tone. And even the 
the way it shifts between the kind of the empathetic perspectives is really interesting. You know, you kind of, you, you build up an empathy for Lazarescu's character, but then I've really found myself shifting sort of halfway through to the, the ambulance driver, you know, the nurse who, who is, is the paramedic who, who turns up and ends up kind of taking him around and sort of gets a real attachment to the fact that she wants him to have some kind of dignified treatment, regardless of how impossible it seems on, on this night where there's also been a huge bus crash. And so I just, I thought it was really, yeah, it really struck me that it it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as bleak as I thought it was going to be, uh, as I'd found it the first time. You know, it, it's not as overwhelmingly depressing because it's got it's got spark to it, um, and even the the horrible horrible doctor underpins him, under undermines that, you know, and sort of shows a little bit of a human side, which again just sort of shifts things a bit. Yeah, I think you should check out the Whistlers because because that's a kind of comedy crime thriller in a way. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's on my list, yeah. And it's, um, I mean, you know, it, it's not brilliant, but I, it, it's got a lot to sort of like about it. And you know, and again, maybe it is that opening out, maybe away from, from this sort of, you know, straight, not pseudo-political realism, but you know what I mean? That, that, that reckoning with, with Romania post-89, I think, is, is perhaps now receding a little bit. But I think what's interesting, yeah, I mean, and just in... The revisiting of Lazarescu was a reminder, actually, yeah, that, that you know a lot of realism, particularly British realism, certainly includes that kind of gallows humour. That you know those those characters who are, you know, stubborn, struggling, but also just human, which includes being humorous. You know, and that was really interesting. I was, it was it was not as as an arduous a watch as I thought it was going to be, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but like you say, it's an investment in in the struggle of people's lives, which is, is quite taxing. So, yeah, I, I was really surprised by that rewatch. Great. Well, thanks uh, to Andre once again for um, doing the interview. It was really, really great. Thank you, Neil, for, for listening to it and taking the, the time to sort of discuss the issues and the films. So we're going to go over to the bonus episode now. So we have a few more questions and ideas to discuss over there, maybe on continuing the discussion on Romanian cinema, but maybe sort of going into other areas as as well. Um, so if you are a Patreon member, please come across and uh, continue with us there. But if not, thanks very much for your time on this week's episode of the Cinematologist podcast. Neil, see you very soon. Yeah, very, very soon. Thanks. Thanks for this episode. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I think it was a yeah, really great uh, overview and insight into yeah a little, little known area. So k- kudos. Absolutely. And um, if anybody wants to contact us, please do on the usual email or social media channels. But until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.